Yeah, it's good to be here with you guys today. Um, you know, th- earlier this week, I was uh, I brought my son, uh, my seven-year-old son Isaiah, to the um, playground, and we bumped into one of his friends. And you know, this is a seven-year-old kid. I go up to him. And he, I was like, "Hey, dude, how are you doing? How have you been? You know, how are you doing, man?" And he answered, "Not good." And I have to say, I was kind of thrown back because usually when people ask you how you're doing, you're like, "Oh, I'm okay," or hanging in there. But he's like, "I'm not doing well." Now, even after I was thrown back, I had to say I respected his honesty because I think for him and for many of us that this year has been uh, really difficult for many of us. You have the COVID pandemic and the shelter in place. You know, you have the outrage over the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. There's tragedies happening around the world like a couple weeks ago and with the explosion in Beirut. You know, I think we're starting to gear up for the election, the news cycle is starting to gear up for it and looks to be really contentious and divisive. And honestly, if I can just pause, even on a smaller scale, in our church, you know, with the difficult news that two of our elders had decided to step down with the leadership uh, transition and even the church restructuring that we're going through, it's been a hard season for many of us. It's been a struggle with fear, with anxiety, with isolation, with disappointment, and honestly, with hopelessness. And as we look at the world around us, and we look at what's going on in 2020, and we look at across the world and what's happening in our own lives and in our own church, it's not hard for us to look out into that world and see just how broken it is. And so I want to start by asking this question, how do we find God? How do we see him? How do we experience God in the midst of the brokenness of this world. You know, when nothing seems to be going right in our lives, when everything is falling apart, when the center cannot hold, how then do we experience God? And one of the first places, if you're a good Christian, is that you would turn to the Bible. But if we're honest, it can be easy, it can even be easy sometimes to miss God even in the Bible. Take today's passage, for example. It's one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible, right? Top 10 in terms of things that people remember from Sunday school, I'm sure. But for most of us, when the Bible passage was read, it didn't really just fix everything in our lives, right? We didn't just sit there and say, wow, God was good to Moses. I guess everything in my life is going to turn out okay. Because it's easy to read passages like today's passage as, you know, through this lens of a long time ago in a land far, far away, God spoke to this guy named Moses through this miracle of a burning bush. And it can almost seem like a a fairy tale, a, a tale as old as time. But even if you accept what we read today as historical, which I think you should, the question still remains, how should it impact our lives today? Because I was uh, talking to my seven-year-old son, Isaiah, this morning, just kind of talking him through the sermon. And I was telling him the story about Moses and the burning bush. I asked him, what is your big takeaway from this story? And he said that God can speak through bushes. And honestly, I think that's a fine takeaway. I, if I asked you guys, I think a lot of you guys would say that that's your takeaway too, that God did miracles back then, and it's possible for him to do miracles like that today. The question then becomes, have you seen God speak through any bushes lately? 
Right? If, 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 the, if the takeaway from this passage is that God works through miracles like this, and you in your life haven't seen miracles like this, then where do you really the hope come from in the passage? Has God spoken to you through any bushes lately? If the answer is yes, then please find me later and talk to me because I'd love to hear from you. But if the answer is no, if God hasn't spoken to you through a burning bush lately or even ever, then it's going to be necessary for us to recognize the ways that God worked in this passage that are still true today. So today we'll look at three ways that God was at work through the miracle of the burning bush and how God is still working in that same way today. You can call them sub-miracles or underlying miracles, but I think they're miraculous things. So there's three from the text, and they're this. The first one is that God sees. The second is that God saves. And the third is that God sends. Okay, the first miracle that we see is that God sees people. He sees people like you and me. You see, because God could have spoken to Moses in the first half of chapter 2, right? The part that Pastor James preached from last week. You see, Moses was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and that means that he was part of the royal family. It means that he was educated. It means that he was wealthy. He was powerful. You see, God could have spoken to Moses when everything was going right in his life, but he didn't. And the second half of chapter 2, what do we see? Moses' life starts to fall apart. He actually kills a man. And so he's a criminal to the Egyptians. He's rejected by the Israelites. He's on the run. He's in exile. And chapter 3, this is when God decides to speak to Moses. And we find Moses still in exile. And he's a shepherd, which we have to understand was a super lowly position for the time. And not only is he a shepherd, but they aren't even his own sheep. They're his father-in-law's sheep. It reminds me of this great song back from the 90s called No Scrubs by the band TLC, right? And the whole, the the singers are singing things like, you know, you live at home with your mama. I'm not going to talk to you. You're hanging in the passenger side of your best friend's ride. And the whole thing that they're saying is, how dare you come and approach me? How dare you try to court me for my affections when you are so utterly unimpressive and you have nothing to show for your self-worth? And that's kind of how we find Moses. He's kind of a scrub. Like, Moses, get your own sheep. You've been doing this for 40 years, bro, and you can't even get your own sheep. But this is when God chooses to speak to Moses, when he's a scrub, when he has lost everything, when he has nothing to hang his hat on, when he is utterly unimpressive. But God, this is the thing we have to understand, the miracle is this, God doesn't just speak to Moses when he's undeserving. He speaks to Moses with affection. You see, in verse 4, it says, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, and said, Moses, 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 Moses. Whenever you see that double statement in the scriptures, it means the speaker is speaking with affection. Moses, Moses, Joshua, Joshua, Martha, Martha. It's always the speaker is speaking with affection. And that, that's a miracle, isn't it? That God would see people with affection when they are totally undeserving of him. 
David in the Psalms ponders the same things when he writes in Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, when I think about how great and how awesome and amazing and holy and powerful God is, David continues, what is a man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you would care for him? It's not just that this great God sees you. That's amazing. But he reiterates that the Son of Man, in the fullness of his humanity, in his utter lack of impressiveness, God cares for him and shows affection to him. And so I guess I would ask you, church, do you believe this to be true? Do you believe this to be true? And the question, I could ask another question. What do you think God thinks about you? How does God feel about you? If I were going to go up to God and ask him, what do you think of, well, you, what do you think he would say? And if we're honest, I think some of us would say that we think God is disappointed in us or frustrated by us or even annoyed with us. We think that God would be happier if I could just get my life together. We thought, think God would be uh, more affectionate toward me if I could just stop sinning in this way. We think that my relationship with God would be better if I could just fill in the blank. But I ask you, church, do you believe this miracle that God, not only does he see you, but he has affection for you? No matter how you are today, no matter how messy your life is, you do not have to fix your life up. You don't have to be deserving of God's affection. God sees people like you and me, not the way that we would like to be, but the way that we actually are. And he has affection for us. And just really quick, I want to add to that. God doesn't only see people but he also sees problems. I'm talking about systemic problems. Talk a lot about systemic problems, and systemic refers to something that's spread throughout affecting a group or a person. And my point here is that God doesn't just care for individual people, but he also cares about collective people. And yeah, sure, it's true. God loves you. God loves you as an individual. That's true. We see in the way that he interacts with Moses, but it doesn't just stop there, and we often let it stop there. You see, in verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. In verse 9, continues, And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. See, God doesn't sit there and say, well, this is just an individual issue between two people. He doesn't say, well, this is beef between Moses and Pharaoh. What he's saying by not listing people off by name is he's saying between, even between the oppressors and the oppressed, what he's saying is that he sees the systemic injustice in this world. It's not just between individuals, but it's, there's injustice that's created by systems. And all the stuff that we're talking about today is true in this passage, racism, Poverty, class, power, all these factors of systemic injustice are at play in the story of Exodus, and we see that God sees them. And not only does he see these people who are oppressed by systematic injustice, but he has affection for them. I think about in the book of Matthew when Jesus is walking around and he looks out on these group of people and he says this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you are not willing. You hear that? Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. 
Again, it's that double statement again. <clears throat> again. <clears throat> and God, and what that means is that God sees and has affection for the collective. And so what we begin to see in Exodus, and we see throughout the Psalms, and all the minor and major prophets, and the New Testament is that God sees when his people are suffering injustice and he has affection for them with a heart that breaks not just for individual persons but for collective people. It makes me think of it like this. Uh, there was this singer back in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Her name was Lena Horne. <clears throat> she, was a, she was from a multiracial background, <clears throat> but, um, but she, you know, she was part black. And, um, you know, she, she was really popular. She was beautiful. She was talented. And they invited her to come and sing for the troops uh, during the Second World War. And she gets there, and she gets out on stage, and what she sees is that the crowd of troops is segregated. And not only are the black troops sitting in the back behind white troops, but they're also sitting behind German prisoners of war. And she's so offended by this that she grabs her microphone, she walks to the back of the auditorium, and she sings from the back of the room. And later, a reporter asked her why she did that, and she said, it's because I wanted to sing for my people. My people. It's the same way that God talks about us. It's the same way that God talks about you and the brokenness and the ways that you struggle in life, and it's the same way that he talks about the oppressed people in this world. You see, because it's amazing. God could have chosen anyone to be his people, right? He could have chosen anybody to represent him on this earth. He could have chosen the Egyptians, the powerful, the wealthy, those in control. He could have said, said, these are the people that are going to represent me on earth. These are the people that I will have affection for. These will be my people. He could have done that because he's God, right? But he doesn't choose the Egyptians. He chose the Israelites, the oppressed, those in bondage. And he said, these are the people that will represent me on the earth. These are the people that I will have affection for. These will be my people. And that's good news for us. It's good news that when God looks into this world, he sees marginalized, oppressed people, people who the world says are unimpressive, are less than, are unworthy and undeserving. And he sees them in the back of the room and he has affection for them. And he says that these are my people. That's a miracle. Another miracle that we see is that God saves. God saves. You see, God isn't really like us. He doesn't, you know, we like, we watch this like amazing, powerful documentary on Netflix that really hits us and speaks to us, and then we turn it off and we do nothing, right? A lot of us are like that. But God isn't like that. he, He doesn't just see, but he acts. And it says in this passage that our God saves. Verse 8, it says, And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. You see, God comes down to deliver his people. He's not just a spectator. He doesn't just give lip service. He doesn't just say, well, this is worrisome. I'm really concerned. But he actually acts and he moves. And he's not some excuse me, passive actor that says, uh, I'll sh- I shall set into motion a series of events that will ultimately, potentially, possibly, maybe touch the situation, but he's direct. He says he will go to them and deliver them himself. That's a miracle, right? But at the same time, if we look at this passage, there's this conflict between the affection of God and intimacy with him running through this passage. You know, Exodus 3, 4 again, that 
Moses, Moses. There's the affection, right? And again, God says that the Israelites are my people. And God says he's going to come down and deliver them. All that is affection. But as much affection that God has for us, there's an issue with intimacy or how much we can be in his presence. Verse 5 speaks to this. When God says, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. In this passage, even when we see God coming down to save his people, there's a limit to how close they can be to God. It's almost like God is saying, Moses, Moses, with all that affection, come near. But at the same time, he's saying, hey, but you got to stay away because I'm holy. And you see this all throughout the Old Testament. God has affection for his people. God wants to deliver his people. God wants to bring and restore and redeem his people. But at the same time, there's always this limit to how close they can be to his presence. So they come up even with this whole religion with rules and sacrifices so they can always manage just how close they can be to God at any certain time. They do it to address this problem or this challenge of being intimate or being in the presence of God. But I'll tell you this, in Jesus, the affection of God and the intimacy of God come together and are reconciled. In Isaiah, when they're talking about Jesus and the prophet is telling them that Jesus is going to be born into this world, he says they will call him, what, Emmanuel, God with us. And I get it that throughout the Old Testament, God's presence was around and God was interacting with his people and the presence of the tabernacle. I get all of that. But this is not meant to be a redundant proclamation of the Messiah. That when Isaiah says this about Jesus, that he is God with us, it means that in Jesus, God is going to be with us in a radically different way. John 1.14 says the same thing. The word became flesh, that's Jesus, and what? Made his dwelling among us. See, in Jesus, we have God who has come down to save his people. Right? We have God who has affection for his people, but who never tells anyone, hey, do not come near. He doesn't say that to lepers or tax collectors or adulterers. In Jesus, we have God come down to deliver his people who is actually criticized for what? Welcoming sinners and eating with them. In Jesus, we have God come down in a way that totally reconciles the affection and intimacy of God forever by going to the cross. See, when he died on the cross, what happened? That veil was torn. When Jesus paid the price for our sins and when we inherited the righteousness of Christ, when we were redeemed and restored, that veil that separates us from God was torn forever so that nothing can separate us from the presence of God. That's a miracle. Now, lastly, I'll say this. The last miracle is this, that God sends that God sends. You look at verse 8, and God again is saying, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And God's basically saying, yo, I'm going to do this myself. God is here. But then just two verses later, he says, come, he's talking to Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So it's kind of confusing, right? In verse 8, God's saying, I'm going to do this myself. Two verses later, in verse 10, God's saying, I'm going to send you to do it for me. Which is it? Is God going to do it himself, or is God going to send us? And this is what we have to understand about, this is a miracle. When God says, I have come down, 
and I will send you. They are one and the same. When God says, I have come down and I will send you, it is the same thing because God's presence goes with us. It's not just symbolic. It's the real presence of God with his people. This isn't just God saying, hey, you're going to represent me. He doesn't say, I've heard, uh, I've heard their compassion and now I'll stay with you while you go um, on my behalf. There's some mysterious thing about how when God wants to go and do some things, we are the ones who are sent to go because we are an extension of his presence. We are an extension of his presence. Now, before you get uncomfortable about this, we see this across scripture. In the rest of Exodus 3, whenever God says Moses will do something, he's also referring to himself. This is really a seamless thing. You look at it through all the New Testaments, John 14, 20. You know, um, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Corinthians 1, uh, chapter 6, or 1 Corinthians uh, 6, do you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Romans 8, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, what dwells in you, he who has raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your moral bodies through the spirit who what dwells in you. You see, God deeply desires our union in him and him with us. And there's something about our calling that unites us with his presence not alongside his presence, not tagging along behind his presence. We are mysteriously unified with his presence. Where we go, the presence of God goes. And when you think about that, that's a miracle. It's so much a miracle that God doesn't really use bushes to bring his presence into the world anymore because he uses us. You know, the question is, why would God use a bush when he could use you? Why would God use an ordinary run-of-the-mill bush to emblaze with the glory of his presence for the world to see? When God could use an ordinary run-of-the-mill person like you, someone who was once far from God, separated by sin, reconciled and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, to emblaze with the glory of his presence for the whole world to see. What is more of a miracle, God using a bush or God using a redeemed sinner? And what speaks more to the glory of our God? Your redeemed life is the miracle that this world needs to see. That is, if your life, if you live your life in a way that reflects God. So in closing, I'm just going to ask us two quick questions for you to pray about this week. And then this, first one, God sees people with affection. Do you? You know, a lot of times I, I myself am really guilty of this. If I'm walking down the street in Chicago and I see a homeless person asking for money, from down the block, I will make up in my mind, I'm going to ignore that person. I will not make eye contact with that person. I will not talk to that person. I don't want that person to know that I see them because I just want to get by and not engage with that person. And that's the way that a lot of times I see the problems in this world. I'm like, you know what? I have my own thing to do. I got to get, I'm busy. I got my own plans. I got my own life to live. And as a result, I really just don't see people. 
I, I don't see people, and I definitely don't see people the way that God sees them. And if you're like me, and you don't see people the way that God sees them, then I would just say, ask God to show you. Because there's one thing that we see in this passage is that he opened Moses' eyes to see people like he does. And he can do the same thing for you. So that's the first question. Do you see people like God sees people? And the second question is, God desires intimacy with his people. Do you? You desire to be intimate with the people that God has placed in your life. And I'm not talking about in a romantic, physical way, obviously. But will you actually leave the comfort of your home, the safety of your life, and will you come down and be with people the same way that God came down to be with you? I believe that's what God is calling all of us as believers to do. And we're going to live it out differently. Right? For some of us, it means going to mean volunteering with organizations in the community. For others, it's going to mean sharing the faith, their faith in Jesus Christ with somebody who doesn't know. And for other people, it might just mean calling someone, a family member or a friend who you just haven't talked to for a while and checking in on them. But that's what it's going to mean to actually come down and be present in the life of people. And don't get me wrong, it's not all going to be historical. Most, if not all of us, we're not going to go down in the history books like Moses. But when we live out our faith, when we see people the way that God does, and when we actually go to them, we bring the presence of God into the lives of people and into this world. So the takeaway today is not let us wait around for God to use a bush. Rather, it's let us invite God to use us. To use ordinary unimpressive people like you and me to bring the presence of God into this world. That is truly a miracle of God that we not only get to witness, but it's a miracle that we can be a part of, that we can live out in our world today.